Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining the Green Dynamics podcast. My name is Ahmed Hassan, and today with me we have a returning champion, Drew Beamer. Drew is a strategic management and communications professional with two decades of experience in policy, governmental, public, and civil affairs. He specializes in training and leading diverse teams of professionals towards success on major initiative. Drew, thank you for coming back. Great to be here. I mean, I think you've you've talked already about who you are and, and, and a bit of your background, but in the last podcast, we haven't had the chance really to talk about something that this podcast will be about, which is elections. And I think from when people can hear you, they, they will know you're an American. And since this is a, I think in history, a very important election year for around 4 billion people are going to elections. And obviously the US elections determines a lot of what happens in the security and intelligence world. I wanted to talk to you about one thing that you know a lot about, which are elections. And I think we could start with, we, we talked a little bit about a list, maybe starting off with the presidential nomination process in the US. Sure. We chose a good day and I'm in a good location because today is primary day for the first in the nation primary, which is in the US state of New Hampshire. The way it works is we have a calendar of cascading nomination contests in the different states. In the United States, you don't just file and then you're on the ballot everywhere. You have to file in all 50 states individually. And they all have their own criteria. Some make you gather petition signatures. Some it's just a filing fee. Some it's a combination of both. There are two primary types of nomination contests. The first one, pun intended, is a primary. And you can think of that as just people going to the polls in their town voting for the candidate they want. The second kind, which is less common, but we already had, is a caucus. And a caucus, if anyone's heard the term Iowa caucuses, they are run like a town meeting where you actually go to a high school gymnasium or a, you know, a town theater, and you listen to speeches by surrogates of these campaigns. And these surrogates are afforded equal time. And then after everybody's heard the speeches, the people in attendance vote. The caucus is going to be a more politically plugged in, dedicated, motivated crowd, because you have to be willing to stay there all day. Okay. The primary... You show up at your polling place, you're going to wait in a line. Where I live in New Hampshire, the line is going to be 10, 15 minutes long. You do it during lunch, and then you go back to work. So the reason why New Hampshire sits at a very important place in the nomination process is because it's the first primary in the process. But the state is also unique because it's the only place or one of very few places in the calendar where you have to actually go out and meet voters and talk to voters personally. If you're in one of these big states like New York or California, the candidates rely heavily on stadium speeches, TV ads. But in New Hampshire, you actually have the candidates, Nikki Haley, Donald Trump. In past years, you obviously had Obama, you had Hillary Clinton going to small town events going to town hall meetings, going to backyard barbecues, and actually making the case to why they should be elected president. And then, of course, the other thing is that New Hampshire is kind of a, you know, as far as political affiliation goes, it's what we call a purple state, meaning the red states are what we call Republican conservative states. The blue states are what we call progressive states for the Democrats, the purple state is the one that is kind of in the middle and goes back and forth. And unlike most states in the country, independent and unaffiliated voters are allowed to vote in either primary. So if you're a registered Republican, you vote in the Republican primary. If you're a registered Democrat, you vote in the Democratic primary. 
But if you're registered as an unaffiliated, which means you do not claim any party as your own, you're allowed to vote in either one. So that unaffiliated vote really, really makes the difference because they get to pick which contest they find more interesting. They get to influence um, the election, you know, and they also, to be honest with you, you're probably going to be the least partisan people, you know, so it's a good indicator of where I stand with the middle, right? And it's going to be very interesting this year because we have a um, we have a contested race on the Republican side between former President Trump and former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley. And on the Democratic side, uh, the president, President Biden, has elected not to be on the ballot in New Hampshire. And that is something that most people don't know. The easiest way I can explain it to you is that the national party apparatus has said that they wanted other states to go before New Hampshire, and New Hampshire decided to go ahead with our election anyway. So sort of as a you know, symbolic move. He's showing solidarity with the, with the National Democratic Party. There is a, what we call a write-in campaign, which is exactly what it sounds like. You write in somebody's name. So he's still going to win the Democratic primary in New Hampshire, but it's going to be closer than it should be. Because of that decision. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And do you think this has any effect on the... The general elections, this move? For him, no, because he's going to be the nominee. Pending some unforeseen circumstance where he cannot be the nominee, he's going to be the nominee. He is lightly challenged. None of the people challenging him on the ballot pose a legitimate threat. And as far as the general election goes, this is a pretty important primary because if Donald Trump walks away with New Hampshire, even though we're only two states into the nomination process, this thing is probably over, okay? If Nikki Haley can show strength and get even close, then she's going to live to fight another day. And the other thing about the United States presidential primary process is the states are one by one for a reason, and that reason is it allows people to build up momentum over time. So... If you come out of New Hampshire looking kind of strong, that is going to translate into more strength the further down the road you go. But then you get to a point in time, though, where you cross the point of no return, because when you win these states, you win basically points, okay? And you're going to get to a point in time, like like a sporting event, where you can be behind by so much that it's just impossible to catch up. Fair enough. So we... We hear a lot about the influence or the, the, the access, or I think you, you mentioned as the infiltration of dark money or foreign money into U.S. politics. Can you explain, does that have any bearing on the primaries? And I think it has more bearings, obviously, on the general election. But how does that work? And what are the vehicles? Well, you have a couple different mechanisms for funding a political campaign. The first one is giving money to the candidate. Okay, that's the simplest and most straightforward way. You're limited by contribution limits. You're not allowed to take money from a corporation. And there's full disclosure. So if you and I give money to Joe Biden or Donald Trump, that information is on a website run by the federal government. They can look up your name. They can see how much you gave him. And I believe the limit now is probably in the range of 3000 U.S. dollars per individual. So in a campaign that costs a billion dollars to run, that's a fairly insignificant amount of money that you or I can give. Now, the next level up is a traditional political action committee. And a political action committee could be run by a company. It could be uh, Coca-Cola. It could be run by a organization like pro or anti-abortion organization. That's a hot issue now. And what they will do is they collect money from donors and then they disperse that money to candidates. Okay, so 
They collect money from donors. There's still full disclosure. They disperse that money to candidates they support. So they will do something like send out a report card where every candidate in, you know, running for Congress has the opportunity to fill out a report card. And then all the candidates who score an A plus, they all get $5,000 from this political action committee because they want to get as many candidates elected who agree with them on the issue that they care about. So the next level above that, and this is where it gets a little bit murky, is you have a super PAC. And a super PAC still has to disclose their donors, but they're allowed to take unlimited money from anybody, from a company, from a billionaire. And their only real requirements are that they are not allowed to coordinate directly with the campaign. And by directly, I mean they are not allowed to talk to the campaign. So if you were the director of the super PAC and I was the campaign manager for Joe Biden or Donald Trump, you would be prohibited from talking to me at all. We wouldn't even go out for beers together. We wouldn't, you know, hang out on the weekends. We would not talk to each other at all because anything could be a violation if we talk about the election. So what you do as the director of your super PAC is you conduct what are called independent expenditures. And those independent expenditures look exactly like a political campaign. They say, vote for Donald Trump, vote for Joe Biden. Here's a good looking TV ad. Here's a slick web ad, you know, donate money, sign our petition, you know, um, volunteer to, you know, do whatever. But at the bottom, it's going to say paid for by make America great again, PAC, not paid for by Donald Trump. Okay. And the reason why that's confusing, and I, I think pretty negative, is that there's way more money in the super PAC side than in the direct, what we call the hard money side. So if you're running for some minor office, if you're running for you know U.S. Congress or, or U.S. Senate in a very contested election, okay, it is very likely that the outside influences spend 10 times as much money shaping your narrative as you spend on yourself. And since you're not allowed to coordinate with them, you can't control what their message is. So you may be very carefully curating your image to the voting public. And you say, I want people to look at me as a sensible businessman who is a upstanding member of the community, you know, and the super PAC based on their polling or their, you know, predispositions or their focus groups is going to say, no, we're going to talk about your stance on this hotly controversial issue. Okay. And we're going to put tens of millions of dollars behind our ad campaign. And then people start calling you up and they say, why are you talking about this hotly controversial issue? You should be talking about the bread and butter stuff like, you know, inflation and, you know, jobs and the economy. And you say, I am talking about that stuff. It's this super PAC that I'm not allowed to talk to that's putting ads on TV with my face and my name telling you to vote for me. And the voting public, to be honest with you, is not fully understanding of that. They look at everything that says vote Donald Trump or vote Joe Biden as coming from him. And that's not the case. Now, the final step here, and this is possibly the shadiest, is you have what are called issue advocacy organizations. Sounds very benign. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> deliberately extremely benign. Yeah. Right. Or, I mean, it sounds benign for a reason is what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. And you, if you love that, you'll love the names because the names of them will always be things like Americans for America or Citizens for Responsible Solutions or, you know, Moms for, you know, education, right? And what they do is they are not allowed to say vote for Donald Trump or vote for Joe Biden, but they are allowed to quote unquote educate voters on issues as a matter of free speech. So they can't run a TV ad that says vote for Donald Trump, but they can run a TV ad that says here's where Donald Trump stands on this issue. And here's where Joe Biden stands on this issue. So to pick one, 
without getting into the weeds, a issue advocacy organization could run ads where they say, you know, here's how Joe Biden and Donald Trump compare on uh, the war in Ukraine. Okay. And then they would give you a very slanted view on how the two compare on the war in Ukraine. They're not telling you to vote for one. They're just saying Trump is good and Biden's bad. Make your own decision. And these organizations are where you see the infiltration of foreign money because there's no disclosure here. These are all basically incorporated as nonprofit organizations. And where it gets extremely, extremely, extremely shady is this umbrella of organization would include something like, I'm trying to think of an actual, you know, altruistic organization. It would include... Like a Red um, Cross. Yeah, it would include the Red Cross. It would include, you know, you know, the Sierra Club, which is like an environmental organization in the U.S. But it would also include people like corporations trying to get money into politics to influence. So sometimes it is done in good faith. Like we have an organization called the AARP. It's the American Association of Retired Persons. And they will do voter education based on how candidates stand on social security reform, on retirement reform. Okay. I would call that coming to the conversation in good faith. But a lot of these organizations that may be funded by you know, big corporate interests will use this as a loophole to influence elections without specifically telling you who to vote for. And since there's no disclosure for nonprofit organizations, anybody can give you money. And, you know, when somebody gives you money, no matter what you're told, that person now has influence over you to a certain extent. So, you know, it's pretty alarming it's a good way to play games with elections. One of the other things that people will do fairly recently is they'll run a false flag operation. Okay. So a progressive organization, just for the sake of argument here, might get involved in a Republican conservative primary by running ads that are favorable to the guy they think is easiest to beat. Okay. So you will get a lot of people who are kind of crazy coming out of these primary elections sometimes. And the reason is you have a false flag operation from the other side artificially propping that guy up because they know that when November rolls around in the general election, they'll be the easiest candidate to beat. That's crazy. So basically they build somebody up just to knock them down when the time comes. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's so interesting. I mean, uh, U.S. politics is so, uh, elections are so much more complex and convoluted than the European ones or, or in, in other places. In the last podcast that you've done, we talked a lot about the interference and the, the involvement of big corporations in, in, in developing countries and, and, and how some entities, state, nation states or, or corporations try to influence the elections. Can you talk uh, a little bit about that? Absolutely. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do it in, a, in the least biased way possible. You know, so I'm trying to arrive at organizations that may not be perceived as being the most biased. But let's just say that you were a foreign country that wanted the United States to pull out of the fossil fuel refined petroleum export game, okay, like we discussed last time, right? And it's a major, major long-term strategic objective of yours to get the United States out of exporting oil and gas, okay? You would put money into a domestic, um, uh, you know, um, climate change organization, and then that climate change organization would carry your water in elections. They would run those uncoordinated expenditures. They would run that voter education stuff where they would push a policy agenda and tell you to elect people who agreed with the uh, green you know, climate change 
agenda. Now, that doesn't make it wrong or false or bad. That does not necessarily mean that they're lying to you. That just means that you have um, what we will call a bootlegger and Baptist situation, which is two seemingly very different forces uniting for a common goal. Okay. The other way that this happens, and here this might be a better example, is if you're looking at U.S. elections and we have, it used to be that you could only go to a couple states in the country to gamble in a casino. Okay. Everyone's heard of Las Vegas. Most people have heard of Atlantic City. They pretty much had the um, market cornered on casino gambling for the longest time in the U.S. So when these other states decided that they wanted to pass laws to allow gambling in the United States, you would get a lot of organizations cropping up called things like Christians Against Gambling or you know Citizens Against Gambling. And those organizations are always funded by the interests that own the gambling in the other states. Okay, so you're somebody who owns a casino in Atlantic City and you're giving money to an anti-gambling candidate in Pennsylvania, one state over, and pushing a narrative that gambling is going to destroy the community. And the reason you're doing that is because you don't want gambling in Pennsylvania because then people won't come to Atlantic City. So that would be a example of another false flag operation. And um, that kind of thing is very common in the United States. And like when we were talking about energy and infrastructure, it's very difficult to build things because we have very strong property rights. It's very hard to tamp down on campaign spending and lobbying money because we have very strong free speech rights. So they've extended free speech to things like corporations, political action committees. So that is how you get corporate money into things. Now, the the other thing is the framing of it is, you know, when there's ever a proposed ban on certain types of food, for instance, you had um, New York City banned trans fats. Mayor Bloomberg a few years ago tried to ban large sodas, large soft drinks. The food industry, the restaurant industry, will create a grassroots movement locally called, you know, Citizens to Defend Consumer Choice, okay? And they will bang on this consumer choice narrative and rope people in on, you know, do you like consumer choice or do you hate consumer choice, right? And of course, everybody says, I want choice. I don't want the government telling me what I can buy in a grocery store. But in reality, they're just specifically laser focused on one issue. And that one issue is to continue putting things that are proven unhealthy and or addictive into your food. So you have to assume if you live in the United States at this point in time, that anything you see, especially in the context of a political campaign or a lobbying effort, is some kind of information operation being run on you. Now, the difference is when it comes from a campaign directly, the candidate may be lying to you, but you know what their objective is. You know, when Donald Trump gets on TV and says something, there's no question about what his mission is, right? His mission is to be elected president of the United States. So, that doesn't mean he's telling the truth. It just means that we know, everybody knows what the guy's trying to do. If you have an organization cropped up called Citizens for Consumer Freedom, okay, you have absolutely no idea what they're there to do. They may be there to keep high fructose corn syrup in food. You know what I mean? They may be there because they don't want health regulations. You know, they could be there for any reason. And the thing that makes it difficult is in these nonprofits that we mentioned, these issue advocacy organizations, there's really no way to know where they're getting their money from. They could be getting it from Coca-Cola. They could be getting it from the Communist Party of China. Maybe I wasn't completely clear in my question, but I was also interested in the influence in other countries, like, for example, in the third world. Because I know you have some experience in that, and 
not that you influenced elections in the third world, but you're, you're uh, clued up on it. If you could give us some insight, is that similar? Is that less sophisticated? Is that more sophisticated than what's happening? Obviously, because of different laws. I would say it's less sophisticated in general, unless you're talking about European elections. That's probably extremely sophisticated. When you're talking about the developing world, they have varying levels of campaign finance laws, right? And by varying levels, I normally mean none to only a couple. Okay, that'd be the that'd be the spectrum. So one of the things that makes the U.S. kind of ill-equipped to play that game is we like to hold other countries, trade partners, allies to the same standards that we hold ourselves to, right? And we discussed that as being a liability in the context of energy development and hegemony. It's a liability in influencing elections as well, because we're not going to give money or give support to somebody running in a country where we think the elections are illegitimate. We are not going to give money, you know, to a um, country where necessarily you have anything short of, you know, an open, fair, transparent election. So the the way that a lot of folks will get money into elections, quote unquote, is you can do one of two things. And the easiest thing is to just pay the guy in charge. The other way is you can do similar things to what I mentioned before with these organizations. And then you're usually crossing over the line between voter education and actual information warfare. You can put narratives into the bloodstream fairly inexpensively. The developing world, as you're well aware, is very tuned into the same social media that the United States and Europe are tuned into. They usually have less controls or in other instances, they have more controls. And what I mean by that is in a country with less controls, it's easier to put narratives, false narratives, biased narratives into the bloodstream of the public through things like WhatsApp, through things like Facebook, Signal app. And if there are more controls, then it's certainly easier to be on the side of the ruling regime. If you were trying to garner favor with whoever's currently in control, then you are, as we say, fishing with dynamite, right? Because you're just supporting the guy who's already in control in his effort to stay in control. So, you know, and then a very easy way to do this too is, you know, if you really want to influence elections, you can offer people assistance with the actual apparatus of executing elections, is, you know, there are foreign countries who will say to a developing country in Africa or Asia, hey, we realize that you may not have the operations or logistics to run a fair election, so why don't you let us help you do it? We'll give you the software. We'll give you the hardware. We'll train your people, okay? And absent a compelling alternative, a lot of people take it, you know? So now I am running your election. And that's different because what I was talking about before is influencing your election by getting money into it. And now I'm talking about actually running it for you. And that is where it gets extremely, extremely scary. Interesting. I remember a couple of years ago, the big scandal broke with Cambridge Analytica and using very sophisticated psychographic analysis to segment population and 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 influence hot button issues or elections in general. Can you talk a little bit about this like micro-targeting behavioral science, psychological warfare, not just in the US, but in general and how it, how it works, you know, can we stop it? And, and, and if we cannot, you know, what's the best way to arm yourself against it? So the micro-targeting has been a big issue and it's become easier with time and it's only going to get easier unless we implement safeguards, which I don't really think we're going to do because there's too much money at stake. But it's gotten easier because because I can segment and target you based on algorithms for what you do on social media or what you do on your computer. One of the old tools that people still use is you'll put a petition online and you'll get what we call opt-in communications. So people sign up 
for information from you. And it's because they click on an ad that says, you know, protect our right to bear arms, sign the petition, people sign the petition. And the issue with the micro-targeting during the the era you're talking about, which is in 2016, is now like ancient history, right? Okay. You could segment and target your ads. And I don't even mean at the high level, Cambridge Analytica level. I'm talking about the you and me level. Okay. If you were running for local office in your city, in New ha- in the United States, you could say to Facebook, you could have an ad and you could say, I want this ad to go to white males between age 30 and 40 who identify as conservative, okay? I want this other ad to go to Hispanic females, you know, and I want this ad to go to people who make over $100,000 a year in this one. So you get the point. So my messages are no longer for the widest possible audience like they used to be. If you look at Kennedy or Nixon or Reagan or any of these people, widest possible audience. I'm going on TV. I'm putting TV ads up. I'm doing a debate. I need my message to hit the most people. Well, now I send one message to, you know, white males between 30 and 40. I send a different message to Hispanic females. I send a message to a guy who makes more, a guy who makes less. You can segment it. We call geo-targeting by zip code or by block. You can target to devices, so you're only targeting to devices that are within a certain geofence. So I could say I only want to target people who are within this artificial boundary that I draw. And if you leave it, you're no longer getting targeted. But if you enter it with your device, now you're being targeted. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I could say, for instance, like, you know, just like if um if you wanted to, if you're doing a lobbying effort, okay, and you said I only want to target elected officials who are in the actual physical Capitol building, okay? When they leave to go across the street to get lunch, when they drive in their car home at the end of the day, I'm going to let them go. When they're in the actual physical Capitol building, I want to target them with something. You can do that. Now, whether that's legal in certain places is 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 going to be different, but that's how the segmentation goes. One of the other ways they segment people is what I call not low tech, but medium tech. And it's email marketing. Okay. Big. To this day, it's very big. Yeah. The Mm -hmm. email marketing is especially big is because it's the only way other than text or WhatsApp where I can send a specific message directly to you, to absolutely nobody else, only to you. Okay. And those lists will be like, you know, we have voters who care about, you know, the right to bear arms. We have voters who care about the right to have an abortion. We get voters who care about taxes, okay? Voters who care about the war in Ukraine. But within those are smaller segments of people who gave very specific answers to very specific survey questions. So when I get the email from you, and I'm just a regular voter who doesn't know how this works, it feels and sounds like you're speaking directly to me. You know exactly what Drew Beamer cares about. You know exactly what makes me tick. You've cobbled together that profile based on answers I've willingly given you in a survey, combined with data that you've mined on me based on what I do online, combined with magazines and things I subscribe to, combined with my consumer habits of things that I buy, okay, and things that I click on, and you have a picture of me in your head that is almost as good a picture as, you know, a good friend of yours would have. So they laser beam that message to your inbox and they say, give me $50. Whatever that issue is, I'll fight for it. Give me $50. You give them $50 with one click, okay? They've sent similar emails to a million people. Now they have $50 million. Okay. So when people focus on the rhetoric and the tribalism and the segmentation of the electorate, 
they focus on the big money. They say this billionaire is putting money behind this guy. This, you know, super PAC is doing this. What really drives the tribalization of the electorate in the United States is the micro-targeting and the geo-targeting. Because you have curated a bubble for me where I go about my day and I literally think everybody agrees with me. You know what I mean? This is why the stereotype in the United States is you go to Christmas dinner with your family and your cousin you haven't seen in two years and there's always a political fight. Always. Is because you live in the world of your daily life, okay? Where you're getting laser beamed pro-Trump, right? He lives in the perfectly curated bubble of his daily life where he hangs out with his friends and they get laser beamed pro-Biden. And then you come together and you're shocked by the fact that you ran into somebody who doesn't agree with you on everything, right? Which is why the advice I give to people is I say, listen, you should build into your day and into your week times to go and deliberately hang out with people who you know disagree with you on stuff. You know, because when you do that and you talk to them and it's not about the border or the war in Ukraine or Israel, right? You say, wow, this guy actually cares about, you know, 90% of the same stuff as me. He thinks property taxes are too high. The streets aren't particularly safe. And, you know, he takes his kid to Little League. So that's a really, really good thing to do. And when I was in political campaigns professionally, I was not doing that. And you paint people as the others, and that's not a healthy place to be. I can imagine. One thing I've been I've been wondering about for a while, we have these platforms with different demographics and ages, like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, emails, whatever. There was a U.S. or mainly U.S., but Western hegemony in that space. Control, let's call it that. With TikTok, that can that have that has changed. And the amount of people that are on TikTok is mind boggling. I don't think a lot of people are like I'm not really on TikTok. I'm not on TikTok. But what I for research purposes, we had great dynamics. Obviously we use TikTok. The amount of the global South that's on the TikTok, and I think especially we can see that now with the war in in, uh, in Gaza, where I think before the the Instagrams, the Facebooks would have been a bit more curated to to show different messages, but in TikTok you see everything, you know. So it's a there's a much more uh, aggressive messaging going on there. So how do you think the advent of TikTok? is going to influence elections in the West and globally? And do you think there will be a time that TikTok gets banned in the US and, and in other Western countries? Well, you have, uh, you have two of the, um, you know, you have two of the major components of information warfare, at least two, right? With TikTok. And one of those is just information security. Okay. And, um, you know, is if you're on it, um, you've clicked a bunch of allowances and acceptances that say that they're allowed to track a lot of things that you do. Okay. And I don't know that those allowances are any different than what Apple is making you agree to, or Google is making you agree to, but I do know that they are controlled by and going to a foreign near peer. Okay. Country. So, you know, that is concerning, but the other thing is the actual information side one of the things with TikTok is the algorithms, and this is not going to be surprising to anybody who's on Instagram. I mean, you know, that's the other thing about the segmentation of the public. If you open up your Instagram feed, every single thing, every single ad is like, oh my God, these guys know exactly what I'm looking for. I was looking for a new pair of hiking boots. I was looking for a new pair of workout shorts. I was looking to buy a new rifle. You know what I mean? Is like, it's custom tailored. So, you know, with TikTok, one of the allegations, and this would be a very effective psychological warfare tactic if true, is they were saying that some of these algorithms are designed to, like, basically, first of all, get addicted 
They want you addicted, but that's true mm-hmm. of all of them, right? Yes. But that's even true of LinkedIn. You know, yeah. they all want you to be addicted to their platform. Yeah. I think they call it brain hacking. Yeah. But with TikTok, the allegation is that they were actually driving kids, high school kids, to have eating disorders. Okay. They were deliberately showing, you know, high school age women, uh, girls, pictures of unattainable body types, unattainable, you know, fitness you know, lavish people on tropical islands and yachts, you know, to make you feel, you know, insecure about where you were. And when you're in high school, these kind of algorithms can really wreak havoc on someone's psychology, you know, and uh, if you were trying to destabilize a country, that would be a very effective way to do it. Now, how does that seg into electoral politics? Well, there are several famous TikTok influencers who just come on, you know, and just shoot videos about issues or shoot videos about, you know, um, their opinions on things, or they do man on the street interview spots where they go around and they talk to people, or they do sort of gotcha things where they put a camera in someone's face. And the question is, first of all, what are the algorithms that are pushing that content to my feed? That's a good question. But the other question is, who's actually paying these people? Okay. Because they're not doing it for free. And that's the question that you should have with literally anybody. And, you know, in the old days, you watch Fox News or CNN, and they have some expert on there talking about the election, and you, you say, well, who's paying this expert? You know what I mean? It could be it could be CNN paying a guy because they need a talking head, or it could be the, you know, tobacco industry paying a guy to do press hits on CNN to carry their specific message. So it's the TikTok, and I'm not intimately familiar with TikTok because I'm not on it, but I know that all of these, Instagram, Facebook, they're designed to be addictive, and they're designed to fulfill two key components of information warfare. One is cyber, okay, taking, you know, putting their tentacles into your everyday everyday life. And then the other one is pushing an actual narrative. Yeah. yeah. And... Because the, the, uh, I've I've heard stories that what people see in China on TikTok is very very different than what we see in the West, or particularly in in the, uh, in the US. But what I find interesting is that if because Facebook, Instagram are not available in China, right? So why is the US allowing TikTok then to be available? And is that has that to do with the, the laws? Haha. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you something, and this goes back to the uh, uncoordinated independent expenditure side of politics and lobbying. Is I am I fall into information operations and psyops just like anybody else. You know what I mean? Nobody's immune. One of the most obvious ones that I've ever seen in recent history is when all this TikTok stuff started coming up, Trump was talking about TikTok. Everybody said he was an idiot because they said he was afraid of kids dancing, right? Dance videos, you know, and he's bad at articulating his points, but that's not what he was saying. He was saying it's an information risk, right? It's a Trojan horse. But the issue is recently on TV in the United States, you see these ads for TikTok and all of the ads are old grandmothers, you know, in the nursing home, firing up the, uh, you know, the smart device. Okay. And it's their grandson who lives across the country saying, Merry Christmas, grandma. You know, I shot this fun Christmas video. And then they say, TikTok allows, you know, America's grandmas to, to have a portal to their loving, you know, dear grandchildren who live in Los Angeles. And, that's the narrative they're running with on TV because they're just they're just rebranding it. It's no longer, you know, dance videos and like, you know, pranks and stuff and viral, you know, memes. It's now the conduit of communications between you and your loving grandmother who you can't see on Christmas Day. Such a wholesome message. Yeah. And you're like, hey, if I was TikTok marketing and PR, I would be doing the exact same thing. But you know, they all uh, in TikTok, they have U.S. affiliates. You know, they have um, they have a company that's in the U.S. that is very astute and plugged in with and capable running their actual advertising. 
and they are laser targeting a message that they know for a fact is going to saturate. So, yeah, so that's one of the things. So you asked about banning TikTok. I don't honestly say it's, I don't think it's going to happen, you know, because we just are too, we're just too dug in on, on, you know, free speech, even as it comes to corporations. And it's just, you know, it's going to be, it's, it's going to be too, too much of a hot button political issue, because even if you were a congressman who wanted to do it, okay, they are going to organize a bunch of constituents who are going to call you up, who are going to show up at committee meetings, who are going to go to Capitol Hill to testify. And you're going to be in a hearing room on Capitol Hill in the committee. And TikTok is going to have 200 grandmothers in that room. And they're all going to testify and they're going to say, please don't take away the only thing I have to see my dear grandchildren. And then you're going to be the guy who hates grandmothers, not the guy who hates TikTok. Okay. And so I don't see it. I also don't really necessarily support banning things. I think that we are within our rights to certainly regulate things. You know, one of the things they did with Facebook, for instance, to tamp down on the um, aggressive targeting of people is is you're no longer on Facebook allowed to micro-target by political affiliation, race, or age. You're only allowed to do it by zip code. Okay, so if you're running for mayor of your town, you can say, I only want my ads to show up in my town, right? But you can't say, I only want them to show up to Caucasian males between 35 and 45 in my town, okay? So they're doing that because they're trying to make the message you send to the public to be a message that hits everybody. That's you and me, though. The corporations are collecting their own data, and you've granted them the right to take it, as have I. You know, when I download the new iOS, I scroll through 40 pages of stuff, click accept, and then, you know, go on with my day. So, yeah, that ship, listen, I'm I'm a privacy aficionado. I'm a privacy hawk. That ship has so far sailed at this point in time. I was, um, we got a dog a year ago, March. And I noticed I got an email or a text. No, it was a push notification to my phone from Amazon. And it said they were pushing on me products to prevent dogs from barking. And I'd never Googled dog barking products. I've never looked up any of that stuff. It What it tells me is there's a certain device in my house that knows that there's a dog mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know that's what so i mean scary. yeah it's scary as hell but then you're like multiply that by everything and that's just you know is is that any scarier necessarily than them knowing what i click on than them knowing what i ask you know my iphone is i wish that we had none of it but um i feel like we're so far down that road that i don't know i don't know what the answer is fair enough i mean this 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 podcast has gone so fast <laughs> Do you, not that I'm an expert on any of this stuff, but do, do you have any questions for me? It can be on election or anything else. It doesn't really matter. But Are um, election issues and political issues something that come up with you regularly? I know political risk does, but like, what about actual elections? Like there's a election in South Africa this year. Mm-hmm. So that yeah. type of, you know, do people ever, do people ever say to you, you know, I want, and, you know, I want some intelligence and analysis on how our climate and circumstances might change based on the outcome of this election. I mean, I would say this. Ideally, they would. But the questions that we get, and it happened in the past, but I think just how we are positioned and built, the questions that we get are often topics and hot button issues that that happen after boom or right of boom as they say so when there's already a crisis when an election already has happened and it's impacting our client now a government came in and all of a sudden you know they want to nationalize its mining industry for example like how do they deal with that how do they get their people out in a safe and secure manner but we do get like, what do you think is going to happen? You know, is is this new candidate 
this candidate might win, how do they uh, look at the, are they favorable to Russian influence in the country or do they favor Western influence? So these are questions that we get. Uh, the other ones are how, and, and it's sensitive, but we did a we did a big project last year, not the year before that, and, and a bit of last year on the Kenyan elections. And that was how terrorism plays a role in elections, where we did interviews and part of it was like focus groups. And, and that was a big research piece. That was a year long. So it was data, interviews, and so multiple indicators. And that if people are interested in that, they can find it online. So that we did. But I think just because of like the character of great dynamics and the topics around, you know, irregular warfare or unconventional warfare and 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 you know access to denied countries and areas or conflict zones, elections are not things that come up very often. Let's say that. Well, even in a lot of countries where I've done other types of business and I've, you know, friends all around the world, is I will just ping people periodically in countries where I know there are elections coming up and I'm not going to say where, but um, in multiple instances, I will ask somebody, what are you feeling about the election on the ground? What are people saying? And I get some variation of it. It doesn't matter because the outcome's already decided. So there's a lot of, there's a very high percentage of the world that's kind of resigned themselves to the fact that the status quo is going to be maintained almost indefinitely. The issue with, um, you know, from a business perspective, a political risk perspective is, I don't know how practical this is in other countries, but in the United States, we will put a fair amount of effort into trying to shape the opinion of a candidate while they're still a candidate before they're actually the president or, you know, in office. And it's easier in things that I do because I don't really work on things too controversial anymore. You know what I mean? So we might be working on energy, labor laws, you know, transportation. So you do have a good opportunity to say, you know, to lay the groundwork, build the capital, start the conversation going to where you feel comfortable that regardless of who gets elected, you're at least going to have a persuadable person who has a um, baseline level of knowledge on the issue. The other thing that you don't want, if you're any kind of lobby in the United States, is if you think somebody's going to talk about an issue on the campaign trail anyway, you want to get out in front of that with some high-level policy briefings and policy meetings with that person so they don't say things that are going to make the issue worse for you You know than it already is or already could be. And I've seen that happen a lot, you know, is there was a very controversial energy project I was working on. There was a governor's race in the state, and we took the time to educate both candidates on the technical specs of the project and the political situation surrounding the project because we didn't want one of them to sort of, you know, go off the deep end and start saying things in campaign speeches that may blow back on us and make it more of a political issue than it should have been. Now, were we successful in that effort? That's debatable, but you certainly try. Drew, thank you so much. I mean, every time we speak, I feel like I learned so much. Any cultural recommendations? What are you reading? What are you listening to? Oh, yeah. What are you watching? As far as uh, as far as far reading goes, I just finished a book called The Chip War, or just Chip War. It is... Uh, it's about microchips, semiconductors. Came out fairly recently, past year or two. And then the other thing that I listen to all the time is um, a podcast called Hardcore History with Dan Carlin. And if you're a history nerd like me who actually enjoys six-hour lectures on obscure topics, um, it's phenomenal. I mean, he has yeah. one uh, called Supernova in the East, which is like a 20-hour lecture on the rise of imperial japan and then the book that i read recently that i think everybody listening to this podcast should read is called war is a racket have you ever heard of that book no i'm gonna write it down war is a racket is a book by marine corps general smedley butler and general butler retired from the marine corps in 1935 
And this book was probably written in 1936 or 1937, okay? And everything he says about the military-industrial complex holds up. If you swapped out the names of the wars and the names of the weapons, and you swapped in modern places, modern weapon systems, it would still absolutely hold up. His examples were talking about when he was getting ready to go to World War One, the Defense Department was signing billion-dollar contracts for horse saddles for a military that no longer had cavalry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he is, um, you know, and it is literally War is a Racket. It's a couple-hour read. It's a pretty short book. And anybody listening to this who's interested in military, industrial complex, national security, 100% guarantee you will enjoy that book. That's a great shout. All right. I, I think... From my end, well, I'm reading. I'm rereading a book, but that's more for fun. I'm reading "I Am Pilgrim," Terry Hayes. It's like a spy novel. I think his second book just came out, so I thought this this was a sequel, but it isn't apparently. But I'm already like halfway into the old books, so I cannot stop now. And really, I and I, I know this sounds very counterintuitive. I don't listen to anything intelligence, military, security related, or watch anything really. It's everything I, I do outside of my work because I, I read for a living So and, 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 and write. So I just like have guilty pleasures. I'm big into Japanese mangas, so I read those. The guys at home cannot see this, but uh, I'm, I'm showing Drew now something I'm reading right now. It's a classic vagabond um, about this... Uh, Wandering Samurai, highly recommended. You uh, recommended to me The Old Man last time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I watched it. It's phenomenal. The only thing I'm upset about is I watched the whole series in like one weekend. Yeah, and yeah, now yeah. With, all these, with all these high production value streaming TV shows, I'm going to have to wait like four years to, oh my <laughs> for God. season two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so many. I mean, if I can recommend you something else that I watched around that, I think The Diplomat on Netflix is really good. I think The Night Agent is really good uh, on Netflix. Um, Reacher on Amazon oh, yeah. is amazing. I would say that season one was amazing. I haven't seen season two yet. I joked with somebody the other day. I said, it's not easy to see your entire life in a biopic online. Or, <laughs> but I said, Reacher did a pretty good job. <laughs> of course, I'm joking. Season one was phenomenal and um, it was, not yeah, too it was really poised good. in the well here. Season two, not as good. Okay. Yeah, I haven't, good. I haven't seen it yet. And uh, it's hard to replicate, I think, a second season. And I'm watching something now, but I'm watching this with my wife, is uh, a Yellowstone. Oh, yeah. It's a couple of years old now, but you know, yeah. you've got to love cowboys. So. And one of the things that we've talked about in the past is that it, it it's always surprising to me, although it shouldn't be surprising, the amount of American pop culture oh, man. that makes it to the entire world, you know? Immense. And, you know, I will, you know, be in South Africa and somebody will have be having the same conversation you and I are having, is they'll yep. say, I've been watching, you know, Netflix, you know, I've been watching Amazon, you know, uh, watch the boys on Amazon or watch Reacher. And for a second there, I'm like, wow, you know, I can't believe this guy's watching the same stuff as me. But then you realize we're all consuming the same pop culture content at this point in time. I wanted to show you, you, you mentioned something just now. Sorry to interrupt you, but uh, no, go ahead. Um, speaking of the boys, I'm reading <laughs> the graphic novels too. Yeah, so sorry. No, that's awesome. But you're right. I mean, I mean what was the saying again? Culture is what is it downstream from politics? Is that the is that the saying or is it upstream? Am I butchering the the saying now? You are, but I don't know which way. I don't remember yeah. which way it was. But you know, um, the other one is culture eats strategy for breakfast. You know, one of the things that I look at when I look at potential jobs, potential employers, and stuff, potential clients is I'm always looking at their culture. Now, culture I feel is more important Massive. than almost anything else. Massive, you know? yeah. Massive. I think if I can toot my own horn a little bit, I think that's what sets us at Dynamics apart, is culture. 
And it's hard to maintain, especially because we are a fully remote team, but we have guys in the US, we have uh, guys and girls in the UK, in Europe, in Asia. So it's, it's, a, it's a very diverse team. And in the last podcast, the podcast that will come out, that should come out before this one will come out, the question that the guest asked me was, how do you guys come up with the articles? And I said, jokingly, but, but also seriously, the reason, the, the direction of the topics that we follow is really what I think is cool. That's the, the all interesting, what I find interesting, what I want to read. But I think a better and more complete answer would be culture, the culture that, you know, of, of what we're interested in. And, and I think it's very eclectic and people say that all the time, you guys are all over the place. And I think there is a red thread and maybe sometimes it's hard to see, but I promise there is, there is a method behind the madness on why we write about the topics we write. And I think now since the year started, we've been even more diverse. So covering like lesser covered conflicts in Myanmar or Papua New Guinea or Western Papua. And, uh, you know, and not just keep on coming back to Middle East, um, you know, and what the news is talking about. I think we talk about stuff that six months later will be on the news. That's good. Then, well, that's where you want yeah. to be if you're in intelligence, yeah. right? Yeah. And I take it to mean, you know, that one of the things that, you know, you guys put out so much information and anybody who's not reading the site with the um, with the in-depth analysis and the in-depth uh, uh, articles on different special operations units from around the world is there's only so many articles that can be written on the Navy SEALs. You know what I mean? So, and a lot of it's redundant, you know, and a lot of it's out there. Um, but, you know, who is writing articles about Finnish commandos or Filipino Marines or, you know, like not as many people. So, when I read that stuff on your site, I'm looking at it as a topic where I know I'm interested in the category of topic, but I'm learning something completely new. And the you talked about culture. One of the things that I think you guys usually do is one of your tabs on your table of contents is for unit patches, right? So you actually will talk about the unit patches of the unit, not just the weapons, the tactics, the gear. The Even the motto. Patches. Yeah. And that stuff is extremely, extremely interesting to me. Very interesting. And it's like when you're a history buff and you like military history and then you find out about a war from the past that you've never even heard of, you know, but you say, I know for a fact I'm going to like this because I know the messenger, you know, I know the person telling the story tells compelling stories, then it's guaranteed that I'm going to listen. And you've created that, you've created that culture with the content where I automatically know that whatever you write or whatever you put in the podcast for that matter, I'm going to be interested in. Uh, that's a higher praise you cannot give us, uh, true. <laughs> and I, I don't do it by myself. There's a whole team, but um, yeah, definitely. I think this is a, I mean, I don't, it sounds cliche and everything, but it really is a team effort and the people that 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 come on board but stay with us are the people that gravitate towards that culture and i think when i when i go to other websites or what i used to read or write and if it resonated with me i was like why is this not in one place right that's what i would ask ask myself so i think a lot of the stuff that we do and, and we did We've, we've published over 1,500 articles and reports. So there's a lot out there. But there's stuff that we've done like four years ago that, I mean, looking at today, I was like, oh, did we became stale and boring? Because I remember we did an article on how Chinese uh, smugglers were using UAVs to infect pig farms with uh, swine flu. Oh, wow. By basically picking up like diseased food or meat and then dropping it into another farm so they could buy the diseased pigs on the cheap, slaughter them really quickly and sell it on. And I mean, talk about dystopian cyberpunk 
story, right? Yeah. So that's the type of stuff that we find or I find really interesting. And the stuff on special operations, that's mainly also because our main focus is intelligence and telling compelling stories through an intelligence lens. And intelligence, you know, I mean, there's debates about this, but exists out of mainly three components, intelligence, counterintelligence, and covert action. And special operations falls on the covert action. And I think also it's the most evocative out of all the topics in intelligence that you can talk about. The I think oh, in sure. the US is Title 50 powers. And that's super interesting. And, uh, and we will continue to do more on it. And there's a bunch of articles coming out on the US intelligence community, the UK, the Canadian, the Russian, the Chinese. So we're going to go into all of that too. So that's the focus for the next couple of uh, months. We can talk about this for a long time, uh, Drew, but thank you so much for coming on board, telling us a little bit about elections and, and taking us on that super interesting trip. I hope people have enjoyed it. And for the people that made it this far into the podcast, guys, please give us feedback. I know the numbers of people listening, and, and, and but nobody rates, rates it. I know people sending me messages on LinkedIn and you know giving me really like kind words I've, I've have i have yet to hear anything negative not that i want to by the way guys but you know please rate us on spotify and apple and let us know what we can do better and what we're doing already good thank you again drew for coming on i see you guys next time cheers